Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, have you heard of the jealous gods who live in constant, passionate war with other gods? and who only know covetousness and avarice? No, I have not. I didn't know that gods could be so prone to desire and violence. I thought that they were born as gods with such a luxurious life, long lifespans, and perfect bodies because they had made progress in freeing themselves from those things. Many gods have done so, but it is possible to enjoy the fruits of good karma in the form of a powerful body with a long lifespan while still being trapped by the passions of desire. I suppose that just like human beings, gods too are subject to the seals of this realm of samsara, and permanence, emptiness, and suffering. Humans war, and so too must our gods. Indeed they are, and indeed we do. But there are those among us who aim to free themselves from those seals. I suppose even some of the jealous gods must do so too. I wonder who among them can see past their own passion to the far shore and I wonder who among them can attain it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing asuras in Buddhism. What are asuras in Buddhism? What is their status in the canon? How ought we understand them? We hope you enjoy. So, what are asuras in Buddhism? Asuras are another type of living being that is inherited into Buddhism from the pre-modern Hindu pantheon. When you look up the asuras online, you get a lot of translations into English that automatically instill a bias in your interpretation of them and apply a Greco-Roman filter over the pantheon that we should be aware of. This filter is not necessarily an incorrect or inaccurate one in every case because of the historical interaction between the eastern reaches of the Greek Empire and the western reaches of the Mauryan Empire, but we should know that the filter is there. The translation or definition of the word ashura that you get that I'm talking about and that when you look it up that signals this filter is that they are demigods or titans. If you know anything about Greek myth, you will know that demigods are half god and half human, usually from having a god and a human as parents. And then titans are the defeated parents of the main pantheon of gods, and they are usually more powerful than the gods themselves. It is confusing and not entirely accurate to think of asuras in either way. Asuras are not more powerful than devas, as being titans would suggest, and they are not partially human, like demigods would suggest. They are gods who are less powerful, less wise, less perfect, and less benevolent than the devas. In Hinduism and other religions of the Indian subcontinent, the asuras have a very vibrant and fascinating textual life. They come up in two of the four Vedas, namely the Rig Veda and the Sama Veda. For those who are unfamiliar, the Vedas are some of the oldest texts in Hinduism. They date back as far as 1500 before the Common Era, and they are myth-historical literature written in Vedic Sanskrit, one of the earliest written Proto-Indo-European languages. I bring this up because their presence in the Rig Veda, alongside other members of the pantheon like Devas, make them some of the oldest mythical beings in human history, which I think is very fascinating. Another type of text where they come up in more detail is the Puranas which are these Hindu epics full of legends and myths devoted to the gods. One of the Puranas is the Mahabharata, from which we get the Bhagavad Gita. 
In all of these types of texts, the Asherahs are depicted as jealous, malicious, warlike, horrifying, addicted to the passions of desire, and very envious and jealous of the devas, and the devas' life of luxury. I recall I translated a wonderful story from classical Japanese called Utsuho Monogatari. This is also called Utsubo Monogatari, with a B instead of an H. This translates roughly to The Story of the Hollow Tree. The first portion of the story follows a young man known as Toshikage as he is sent on a ship to China. On the journey, his ship gets storm-blown to Persia instead, and while there, he meets an Asherah who gives him magical wood to fashion a zither out of. A zither is a stringed musical instrument that sits across your lap. It's fascinating on so many levels because it is so rare that a Japanese story from as far back as the 9th century CE will feature a place as geographically far away from Japan as Persia. And it is fascinating that the author, who remains unknown, thought that Asherahs lived there. Anyways, the story describes the Asherahs in some fascinating ways, which I will list off here. Their hair looks like swords. Their face is ablaze with flame. Arms and legs looked like that of hoes and plows. Eyes glittered like golden bowls. They have sword-like teeth. They are given their bodies as punishment for some karmic crime in the past. They're not allowed to go near people as part of this punishment. They're imprisoned in the world of humans as punishment. Most of this stuff is canonical. These Asherahs are meant to be terrifying creatures, almost like super-powerful demons. I found it fascinating in this story that the Asherahs had been reborn as Asherahs as a punishment, even though the realm of Asherahs is above humans in the hierarchy set up by the six realms of transmigration. It would make sense that they are higher up in the hierarchy if we look at how they are longer lived and more powerful than humans, but it doesn't entirely make sense that they're born there as a punishment for something. It becomes more clear when you realize that they can be reborn that way because they have fallen downward from the realm of devas into the realm of asherahs. This is something that they're very upset and jealous about, and it causes them to wage war on the devas, as we'll discuss in a moment. Starting from the realm of humans, rebirth as an asherah is the result of experiencing the fruits of wholesome karma while engaging in unwholesome karma. To be more specific, you're enjoying the fruits of some past merit while you're doing something bad in the moment. Thus, it matters what you are doing in the moment when your past merit or your good karma comes back to benefit you. For example, if you died during an alcohol binge or an orgy or something, but you enjoyed the benefits of having made an offering to a Buddha or something from the past, you would likely be reborn as an Ashura. However, note that the placement of the Ashura realm in the Buddhist cosmology varies among traditions. Often, it is above humans, but it can also be below. Additionally, it can be lumped in with the realm of the devas, all as one realm. So what is this about the war between devas and the Asuras? Well, in the Hindu mythos, and the Buddhist one as well, the Asuras initially lived in the Triastrimsa heaven, with the devas, but when Indra became the king of all devas, he cast the asuras down from that heaven, causing them to rebel and fight to retake their homeland. Eventually this war ended, and the asuras were allowed to live in the triastrums of heaven again. This war is told in the Jataka tales, which are tales of the Buddha's past lives. The war is sometimes reminiscent of the Asir Vanir war in Norse mythology. In that war as well, the result was the unification of the two rival pantheons into a single one. As such, some scholars have argued that there is a correspondence between the word Ashra and the Old Norse Asir and the Proto-Uralic Asera, all of which mean Lord, Powerful Spirit, or God. 
Some say that the correspondence between these words extends beyond Asera, Ashura, and extends to a scattering of other parallels. I can't speak to the accuracy or veracity of this argument because I'm not a linguist, but I can confidently say that there is no known historical connection between the northern Indian cultures and the Norse ones. This connection and the correspondence is much more useful as evidence that helps build the timeline of the development of languages over time. It is well known that Indo-European languages are a family of languages that developed into the various Indic and European languages, and so this sort of correspondence helps linguists understand how Vedic Sanskrit and Old Norse are related. Looking back on the description of these in the story you translated, Utsuho Monogatari, right? That's right. This description, this looks like a mechanical creature. If I was looking at this right now, I would, and didn't have the word Ashura to associate with it, I would think of some kind of battle robot. There's a lot of this that makes it seem metallic or made of wood. Yeah, I thought it was weird that both the hair and the teeth were like swords. And I thought that the eyes glittering like golden bowls was a strange image. And of course, the arms that look like farm tools. That is all very strangely metallic and mechanical. And I promise that whenever you look at the original text, these are the actual words that are being used. This is not a case, as we've seen before, where the translator has taken some sort of creative liberty. There's actually literally golden bowls written out in the text in classical Japanese when describing the eyes, and hoes and plows when describing the arms and legs and so on. So it's really odd. I, I think that they're meant to be very scary. I think this mechanical imagery and this sword-like imagery and the fire imagery is all supposed to make them extra scary and extra spooky to someone who's reading about them, but definitely it has this weird mechanical feel to us in the modern era. Just wanted to comment on that for a moment because it's a detail I thought was interesting, but let's get back to the script. So, what is the status of Asherahs in the canon? As I mentioned before, their place in the cosmology changes depending on a particular stream of interpretation, and some of the karmic causes of their birth as Asherahs has been discussed. We even mention them as characters in classical Japanese literature. However, it is rare that they are named as characters in the canon itself, and it's rare that they do much of anything in that canon when they are mentioned. Thus, thinking about how they fit in is relatively straightforward, more so even than the devas. The reason why could be perhaps because the asuras are acknowledged but are even less thoroughly described than devas, such as Mara, Brahma, and Indra. They are always written out as celebrating or acquiescing or becoming enlightened when the Buddha preaches, but they don't do much else. There are no asuras who are worshipped, but they are often included in iconography, statuary, and art at Buddhist sites. For example, there are statues of asuras at Kofukuji in Nara, one of the most important areas of Japan for Japanese Buddhism. Additionally, in the mandalic representations of the six realms of transmigration, there is a realm of asuras with asuras in it. Interestingly, they rarely, if ever, are depicted like scary demons with sword-like hair and teeth and golden bowl eyes like we saw in Utsuho Monogatari. They usually look like devas, but with three faces and either four or six arms. I suppose that their form is relative to their karmic status. If they have more bad karma, they're scarier and more vicious looking, and if they're better off, then they look more like devas. Either way, they are depicted as much more warlike and militaristic than the devas, and even more so than the humans. At the end of the day, I think that there are, at minimum, 
three equally valid and possible ways to interpret their status in the canon. One is that they are subject to the passions and are more warlike and jealous means that they are lower on the hierarchy than human beings, but above animals. The second is that their karmic status might be mixed. They can be as meritorious as would place them right below the devas, or as bad as being roughly equivalent, or even maybe a little better than the animals. The third is that their karmic status is better than that of the humans even if they are subject to the passions, because they are fallen devas. Even if they are subject to the passions, they are still better off than humans because of the strength and purity of their bodies as compared to ours. How ought we understand Asuras? You'll remember that when I discussed devas, I mentioned that there was likely something rhetorical going on when they were included in the sutras. The devas were familiar to the Buddha's audience, and so he plugged them into his prescriptions as a means of legitimizing his way of thinking and also making it intelligible to the people he was talking to. All of that holds true for the asuras as well. However, devas existed in a strange area where it was not clear if they were enlightened by nature, or if they were very close, or if the formless ones even exist in the cosmology or not, and so there was much more interesting stuff to talk about in terms of what they contribute to the Buddhist argument about the benefits of following the teaching of the Buddha. The asuras don't live in that borderland. They are much more squarely in the realm of desire. Because of that, what are we supposed to learn from them or about them when it comes to the Buddha's teaching? There are several possible ways to answer that question, and I'll volunteer a few of my own answers. We could say that the asuras are meant to bridge the interpretive gap between humans and devas. That is to say that asuras could be a missing link, so to speak, between human beings and these extremely long-lived gods who have all sorts of powers and who live an incredibly luxurious life and are free from suffering and desire. They have deva qualities like long life and powerful bodies, but they also have human qualities like passion, militarism, and desire. We could also say that they are set dressing. An easy example to reach for is cherubs or cherubim in Judeo-Christian traditions. They are second to the seraph or seraphim. Few of them are named, and some have a function, but they don't really do much else besides that function in the texts. Be aware that the similarities pretty much end there. I notoriously do not like comparing distant and markedly different religious traditions, but the cherub example is useful if you're attempting to create a hierarchy of beings in your mind. Another possible way to find an answer to this question is to step outside of the Buddhism studies perspective and into a broader one encompassing religion as a human activity. For as long as human beings have had the ability to, they have made extremely enhanced and embellished and dramatized projections of themselves in myth and worshipped many of those projections in what we now call religion. These projections and the myths they come up in serve the function of centering the reader, hearer, reciter, or whoever encounters the myth in their community, in the world of living beings, and in the universe. They also center the person on a moral spectrum from good to bad. They center them in time, and they center them on the spectrum of existing or not existing. These projections afford divine or legendary or mythical voices to certain messages that those people in power seek to disseminate to those outside of it but they beautifully mirror the human condition, which is in many ways universal and ignorant of power and control. The asuras and the devas could be projections of the warlike and the noble among us, respectively. Interpreting them that way does not tell us anything interesting about what the Buddha wants us to know, but it does help us maintain a useful perspective when we meet fantastical characters as we take a long tour through Buddhism. 
The final interpretation I want to offer, though not the final possible one, follows from the previous one. It is that they are cautionary tales about envy, covetousness, militarism, passion, and desire. The idea could be that the Buddha is saying to his entire audience, including humans and devas, if you let yourself get carried away with this stuff, you could end up like that. You could end up a fallen deva, or you could end up a monstrous, almost animal-like humanoid being. Remember the balance of desire and passion is important in this cosmology, so the fact that they have so much of desire and passion is important for us to know in terms of our own place as humans and the balanced ratio of wisdom and capacity for awakening to suffering and desire. I want to step outside of Buddhism for a minute and talk about how asuras tend to be portrayed in media. In my case, I'm building mostly from video games. When I'm not working, uh, there's a fair chance that I'm playing something. And Ashras and Devas both come up in video games fairly often, especially games from Japan. And it's interesting how different they tend to go. So, like, when you're talking about Devas, usually in the media, it's a named one. You're talking to Shiva or Brahma or Mara, etc. Meanwhile, in most of these games, an Asura is just a normal enemy. Like, it's going to be a monster that you find out in the field with extra arms. And they also seem to be more, like, Asuras are made characters in modern stuff. They seem to be more rage-oriented than envy-oriented, and I'm curious what happens. What happened there, or maybe it's a matter of their envy leads to rage in stories. Like the idea that we presented here just now about them being covetous and envious doesn't seem to be how they're talked about today, and. It'd be interesting to tr- like trace that back to figure out what happened or like what I'm missing in my media consumption that completes that picture. That's a really good question and a good point to bring up. I think there's a couple of things going on there. The most interesting thing to me when you were describing all of that is that they're described as enemies. In these video games that you're talking about, some of which I've seen as well, you have to fight them and defeat them. You have to fight the Asuras and kill them. And that's obviously distinctly non-Buddhist. And the devas may or may not be on your side, but the asuras definitely aren't. And so that's fascinating enough as is to me. But then it's also fascinating, like you say, that they're rageful and that their motivations are not usually clearly covetousness or envy. To answer that question and address that issue, I think that it's I think the envy and the covetousness are being lumped together with the rage and the militarism all as one thing. And it's kind of flattening the characters a little bit, but it's kind of explaining their motivations in such a way that's consumable to make them enemies in a video game. So whenever you're encountering them, they're not expressly at war with the devas in these games. They're not expressly at war with you in these stories. They're just angry and militaristic. And so what I think is going on is just a flattening to make it more consumable, more palatable, and more applicable for them to be picked up out of the canon and put down into whatever sort of story that is being told around them. And I think that it sucks sometimes that these characters, which are so interesting and have complicated motivations, are flattened. But I do think that sometimes it's necessary because 
obviously in these video games and in these stories, the Asuras are not the main course. They aren't the main event of the story. They're enemies that you encounter in the course of the story. And so that's a possible explanation that I can come up with. I don't really have anything else to say about it from anything I've encountered just because I don't know how versed in the canon and how aware of these characters the people who wrote those stories are. That's probably something that's more specific on a case-by-case basis. I do think it's fun and interesting that they are enemies, though, because Asherahs don't have anything expressly against humans in the canon. There's nothing in the canon that says that an Asherah will try to hurt you or try to get in your way. Obviously, they're more subject to the passions and more crazy in their depiction than humans are, but they're not necessarily violent or covetous or envious towards people. They are towards devas, but not towards people. So I think that it might be another case where they were just picked as a fun, interesting character that people would have some measure of cultural awareness of. Because for example, in Japan, everybody reads these 10th century classical stories that I talked about. They read Utsuho, they read The Tale of Genji, they read all these other things for high school classes, the same way that we read Shakespeare over here. So maybe they've encountered them there, and they come up in the games because of that reason. This concludes our discussion on Asherahs. We hope you enjoyed. Join us next week where we will discuss Pretas. What are Pretas in Buddhism? What is their status in the canon? How ought we understand them? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. See you next time, and thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.